Good morning, Grace. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Wasn't it cool getting the band back together this morning? That was wonderful. Love seeing Andrew and Nate leading us in worship. That was uh, the first many years of my time at Grace, so I'm grateful for that. Second Corinthians chapter 4. This morning we're going to be continuing in our sermon series, Because He Lives, where we are considering the various implications of Jesus being raised from the dead. Every year, we, uh, th- the nature of things is that we end up speeding through the Holy Week and Easter Sunday and Resurrection Sunday. And so we have a relatively short amount of time to focus on the glory of Christ being raised from the dead. And so it's been a burden uh, that we've had for a while where we wanted to camp here and consider some of these amazing implications of Jesus' resurrection. And so that's what this series has been aimed at helping us do. So two weeks back, we considered this idea that because Jesus was raised from the dead, that we can be raised with him. Uh, Because Jesus lives, we are now made alive together with Christ. And so that says something about how we presently live our lives with resurrection power. But then last week, Kenny helped us to understand that because Jesus was raised from the dead, he was raised for our justification. And so now we relate to God as those who have been counted righteous, as those who are not guilty. And so over the past two weeks, we've considered the resurrection so that we now know that it it says something about who we are today. And it says something about how we stand before a holy and just God. But where is this all going? What's the, the end of the resurrection? What are the future implications of the resurrection? That's what we want to consider this morning. What are the future implications for Christ's resurrection? This morning we're going to spend our time seeking to answer that question. And we're going to do so by going to 2 Corinthians 4. And we're going to seek to answer this question in 2 Corinthians 4 by answering the central question of 2 Corinthians 4. Four. In this chapter, uh, Paul uh, is giving a sort of defense of his gospel ministry. He is experiencing all sorts of suffering as a result of his proclaiming Christ. He's being persecuted. He's experiencing the pangs of death of just living in a sinful world, but also because he is seeking to make Christ known wherever he goes. He's preaching Christ. He's teaching Christ. He's living to make disciples of all nations. And so that's bringing about a certain type of suffering upon him. And Paul's opponents would have him to believe that this would say something about the validity of his ministry. Paul doesn't this mean that God is not happy with your ministry? Doesn't this invalidate your ministry? Otherwise, wouldn't you be having more health and wealth and material success? Nevertheless, regardless of Paul experiencing these things, he presses on. 
He keeps going. He perseveres. How does he do that? How does he persevere? I think the answer to our first question, what are the future implications of the resurrection, is the same answer to how does Paul persevere in carrying out his gospel ministry? And so we're going to seek to answer those questions from 2 Corinthians 4. Two truths. Two truths that I believe this passage will equip us with. Two truths, and then we're going to consider two implications of those truths. So, 2 Corinthians 4, chapter, or chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. If you have your Bible open, please read along with me. <clears throat> but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also be manifested in our mortal flesh so that Death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke, we also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake. So this grace extends to more and more people. It may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your goodness, for your sovereign grace. We praise you for the ability to gather together as your people and to worship you by sitting under your word this morning. Lord, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear Would you take your word and by your spirit apply it to our hearts so that we would cherish Jesus and know uh, what is our future hope. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So once again, two truths that we want to see from these verses. First, Christ has been raised in glory. Christ has been raised in glory. Glory, And we're going to see this in verses 13 and 14. That's where we want to camp. This all starts with this idea that suffering abounds for Paul. Suffering, danger, persecution, sword for Paul. Yet, what does he do? Verse 13 can be summarized by saying he keeps on speaking. And so we also speak. 
How does Paul continue to speak? How can this be? Verse 14, knowing knowledge. Paul is equipped with a certain knowledge, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus. Pause. This is how Paul kept speaking. He was equipped with this knowledge and he desires that we would be equipped with this knowledge as well. We start with a sure affirmation of the resurrection of Jesus. God raised Jesus from the grave. Death had no power over him. It could not hold him. And so Jesus trampled over the grave. How can we suffer without losing heart? How can we persevere? How can we keep going? It starts here. God raised Jesus from the dead. But our point isn't merely that God raised Jesus from the dead as if he was raising Lazarus from the grave. God didn't merely make Jesus alive and make his heart start beating again so that the decaying effects of life could once again take place in his body. No, this sort of resurrection is not the sort of resurrection that would bring about an eternal hope that would cause us to persevere for all time. Rather, Instead, God raised Jesus and he raised him in glory with a glorified body. This whole passage has eternity in mind. And so when this passage says that God raised Jesus up from the grave, it's not meaning to say that he merely made him alive. No, it's saying that he made him alive with a certain quality. This is implicit throughout this passage. It's explicit all throughout the rest of the New Testament. Romans 6, for instance. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Jesus' resurrection means that he now lives forever. 1 Corinthians 15, 42 through 49 describes the resurrection from the dead and it uses words like imperishable, glorious, power, spiritual body. It says that Jesus is the last Adam, a life-giving spirit, the man from heaven. The gospels show us a resurrected Jesus and they seem to indicate that that there's something different even about his appearance. His, His closest disciples didn't recognize him. There seemed to be something supernatural about his body that he was able to walk through doors. He was able to appear and disappear and reappear in different places. Something's different about his body. On that last bit, it's not entirely clear on whether or not that was happening because of Jesus' glorified body or because Jesus is Jesus and was performing a miracle. Our own Alan Gomes says that when considering Jesus' resurrected body and him being uh, raised in glory, it's best to, to hone in on passages like 1 Corinthians 15 to see what's going on. 1 Corinthians 15, 53 through 54 says this, For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal body puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying, death is swallowed up in victory. Alan says this about that verse. The meaning of these words is clear. 
the resurrection body will be free from and impervious to all disease, defect, corruption, disillusion, or death. It will be a body full of health, life, and energy, empowered by the Spirit of God. It will be indestructible. As Charles Charles Hodge put it, there is no decrepitude of age, no decay of the faculties, no loss of vigor, but immortal youth. Or as another theologian said, incorruptible, that is incapable of decay. Glorious, which means resplendent with heavenly brightness. Powerful, that is instinct with energy and perhaps with new faculties. And spiritual, which does not mean immaterial or ethereal, but adapted to the spirit, a perfect instrument of the spirit. In 1 Corinthians 15, God is kind to give us an image that helps us to better understand what's going on here. God says that this whole idea is like a seed. It's a seed that is sown and it's a seed that is sown natural. It's sown perishable. It's sown destructible. In other words, it's sown human. But that seed doesn't stay a seed. It gives rise to a plant, something different and something objectively better. And that plant is glorious. That plant is beautiful. The plant is spiritual, indestructible, eternal, powerful. So this illustration, God tells us that in our humanity, we were like seeds. And so we had the quality of seeds, destructible, perishable. But... According to God's steadfast loving kindness, he sent his son to come and to take on the qualities of being a seed, to become human. And through death, through death, Jesus now, as a seed, sprouts and becomes something that is in some ways the same stuff of a seed, but at the same time, something altogether and entirely better, a plant. And in doing this, Jesus reworks life and death according to 1 Corinthians 15. So this is how Jesus was raised. He was raised bodily, but he was raised in glory with a glorified body. And so first truth is that Jesus was raised in glory. This is the first truth we need to be equipped with. We need to be equipped with this and this is going to help us to persevere because of where this leads us, because of what this says now about us. So second truth, first truth, Jesus was raised in glory. Second truth, Christ is the first fruits of our resurrection. Christ is the first fruits of our resurrection. Let's look at all of verse 14 now. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. How does Paul keep going and keep preaching? Because God raised Jesus from the dead in glory and, and he will raise us with Jesus in glory. What is Paul's eternal destiny? What is anyone's eternal destiny who is in Christ? Is it nothingness? The void? Is our best hope that we will 
dissolve into the dust and nothing too bad will happen to us? What does the gospel say about our eternal destiny? What does the gospel promise us? It says that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection says that we now who believe in Jesus by grace through faith have life, eternal life. We will have resurrected life and not any mere resurrected life, but a particular sort of resurrected life. Jesus is called the first fruits of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. He's called the firstborn of the dead in Colossians 1 and Revelation 1. These phrases, they say something about our resurrection. They say something about our resurrection. Our resurrection will be like Jesus's resurrection. These phrases are incredible because if you think about them on their face, they're not true. They're not true. Lazarus was raised from the dead. He was resurrected from the dead before Jesus. The little girl in Mark 5 was raised from the dead before Jesus. The dry bones in Ezekiel 37 were raised up from the dead before Jesus. And so what's going on? Is is scripture erring here? Is scripture wrong? Did scripture misspeak? No. No. Scripture is not speaking to Jesus merely experiencing resurrection. It is speaking to the type of resurrection that Jesus experiences and the type of resurrection that Jesus has now secured for you and for me who are in Christ. All of those who were raised to life before Jesus, Lazarus, the little girl in Mark 5, the dry bones of Ezekiel 37 and any others, all of those were raised to life only to die again. Raised to life only to return to the dust again. But Jesus, Jesus lives forever. Imperishable, immortal, glorious. In 2 Corinthians 417 says now that our resurrection will not be like Lazarus' resurrection, as great as that was. No, it will be of the same type, of the same nature as Jesus' resurrection. We who are in Christ will be raised in glory, imperishable, immortal, with glorified bodies in keeping with our Savior. Let's circle back to that image, the first fruit image. Such a helpful image. It's such a helpful concept. And I fear that the the significance and the weight of this image is going to be lost on us because we are people mostly uh, who weren't raised in an agrarian society. We're not going to get this because we're not farmers. What is a first fruit? It's an agricultural phrase, a pretty basic phrase, nevertheless, a really important phrase. And it's important and it's an important concept because it communicates things to us. It communicates at least two things. First, it communicates the simple fact that there is a harvest. If if a first fruit were to pop up, 
then that tells us merely that there is a harvest. That may not seem like a big deal, but when your food does not come from the grocery store, but from the ground, the fact that a harvest is coming is huge. And so the first fruit says, it is coming. A harvest is coming. Take heart. But two, it speaks to the type of harvest that is coming. A farmer will look at the first fruit that that comes up and he does so to, to better understand the type of harvest that is going to come. A strong and healthy ear of corn communicates that more strong and healthy ears of corn are coming. And a weak and gross ear of corn communicates that more and or that weak and gross ears of corn are coming. And so it can be the difference between communicating that there is a bountiful and a good harvest and a scarce and a gross harvest. The thing about first fruits, though, is that you'll never get an ear of corn for a, for, for a first fruit and then get a harvest of bananas. You know, you'll never get a first fruit of radishes that taste great, like radishes are supposed to taste. I hate radishes. I don't know why I use that as the the one I'm going with here. But you'll never get a first fruit of radishes that tastes like radishes and then get a harvest of plums. That's not the way this works. No, the first fruit dictates the type of harvest that is to come. And so this is what Paul wants to bring home for us, I believe. The reality is for every single one of us in this room, the the stark reality is is that every single one of us will die. We will all die. Unless Christ returns and calls us home before that day, every single one of us will see the grave. Some of us will see the grave in a relatively happy uh, context. Long life lived. Uh, surrounded by family and loved ones, we will, uh, we will die, depart from this body. Some of us, though, the, the circumstances will be far less uh, enjoyable and pleasant. The reality is, is every single one of us will die. But Jesus died. And he rose again and he rose again as the first fruit of resurrection. And so now his resurrection promises us that we will not be abandoned to the grave. We will not stay in the dirt. No, it tells us of a resurrection and it tells us the type of resurrection that is coming, a glorious, better than anything sort of resurrection. How do we know? We know because the last part of verse 14. Last part of verse 14. Read with me. God will raise us with Christ and, and he will bring us with you into his presence. What's the end result of our being resurrected in glory like Jesus? It's that we get the prize of our salvation. We get God himself. We are ushered into the presence of God. We get Jesus. We get the greatest treasure and we get to see him not through a mirror dimly lit. No, we get to see Jesus face to face. We get to embrace Jesus with our our glorified bodies and we get to enjoy his presence for all time. 
This is why Paul groans in 2 Corinthians 5. Paul longs to be clothed with the heavenly dwelling, meaning he longs for his resurrection body. Why? Because in his resurrection body, he will experience full, unencumbered communion with Christ forever. So do you want to know what your resurrection will look like? Do you want to know what eternity looks like for you? Look to Jesus, our forerunner. Look to him who has gone before us. Look to him who has conquered the grave and was raised in glory. And be blessed as you consider that. These are the two truths that we need to be equipped with this morning. Jesus Christ was raised in glory. And he is the first fruits for us as well in our resurrection. These are the two truths. Now, we want to consider the implications of those two truths on us. What does this mean for God's church? What does this mean for us who are seeking to live out our daily lives? Two things. First, we are very bold. We are very bold. Read with me verses 7 through 12. But we have this treasure, the gospel message. We have this treasure in jars of clay, referring to us to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So, death is at work in us, but life in you. What did Jesus' resurrection from the dead and Paul's future resurrection from the dead enable? Bold gospel proclamation. Look at what Paul endured for the sake of the gospel being proclaimed. He was afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, and struck down. And we know from other places in scripture that he was beaten. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked. He was a despised man. Yet he kept preaching and proclaiming Christ with all boldness. How in the world was Paul able to do this? What enabled him to be so bold and to continue in proclaiming the name of Christ? He knew the future. He knew the future. He knew that Christ had been raised from the dead and so he knew that he too would one day be raised from the dead no matter what happened to him. No matter if he was torn in two, no matter if he was stoned to death, no matter if he lost every single earthly possession, he would be raised in glory, imperishable, undefiled to experience everlasting communion with Christ, his prize, his treasure. Paul, armed with that knowledge that Jesus had been raised and that he would be raised too, was therefore enabled by the Spirit to live life as a dead man walking 
carrying the death of Jesus in his body so that while death worked in him, as he proclaimed Christ, life would be worked in others. No, this is what the resurrection has historically accomplished. The resurrection made cowardly people like Peter turn into the rock. The resurrection turned a religious idolater and zealot like Paul into a person who was as bold as a lion to proclaim Christ. It took a religion that existed amongst the 12 and maybe dozens others, dozens more, and it turned it into a worldwide thing where now over 3 billion people bow the knee to Jesus Christ. The resurrection is what enabled people like Kim Lee to give her life for the sake of the gospel being proclaimed in Siberia and to even give all of her wealth away so that the gospel would continue to be proclaimed. It's what enabled people like Jim Elliott and Nate Saint to give their lives in Ecuador, giving up what they knew they could not keep so that they could gain what they would never lose. It's what enabled Billy Graham to live a life of proclamation because he knew that when he was absent from the body, he would be present with the Lord. And he knew that one day Christ would return and he would usher in the new heavens and the new earth. And he, along with the entire church, would be raised bodily. God would gather his people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation and gather them to himself so that they could worship him forever. This has forever been the bedrock of gospel proclamation for the church. This has enabled the church to go and make disciples. Strangely enough, this makes me think of Alabama football. <laughs> Raylan and I are hardcore Alabama football fans. Many of you know that about us. Uh, we're the sort of fans who sometimes don't always have the most... Uh, positive reputation because of how seriously we take things. We tend to stress a lot about games. And this has manifested itself in a particular way with Ray Lynn over the years. Um, we watch games and they tend to be stressful. And when they're the most stressful, Ray Lynn will end up uh, being overcome and she'll leave the room. So she'll go into the kitchen or she'll go into some back corner of the house. And what's happened over the years is she has ended up missing so many important moments and plays because of her stress. Um, well, uh, this phenomenon sort of changed this past year a little bit. So we have uh, TV that we stream from the internet. And what that means is, is that, our, that our TV feed is usually about a minute behind what's live. And uh, throughout the course of the season, I would notice that Raylan would get a lot of text messages during the games and, and particularly during big moments of games. And during the most stressful parts of these games, I would look over and I'd notice that my, my wife, who's normally in the other room stressed out, would be sitting there serenely, uh, boldly looking at the TV <laughs> with no worry on her face. You think, how can this be? Like, how has everything changed over the course of, of one year? Well, what had been happening was, is since we were behind, she would get text messages that would say touchdown or big play or whatever it was. And so she was able to boldly and confidently approach this game. Why? Because she knew the future. She knew the future. Guys, that's what we're seeing here. 
The resurrection is not only a future reality for us, but a thing that directly impacts how we presently engage the lost and dying world that is around us. It compels us to live knowing the end of the game. Since we know the end of the game, since we know where this is all moving, since we know that this ends in glorious resurrection with God gathering the redeemed to himself and raising them up to live in the new heavens and the new earth with him forever, since we know that, we can now boldly engage. We can be like Paul. And though afflicted, we will not be crushed. Though perplexed, not driven to despair. Though persecuted, not forsaken. Though struck down, not destroyed. Why? Because we will be raised in glory with Christ. And so, Grace, I urge you, let us be the sort of church that gathers together and worships the Lord on a Sunday morning like this and then scatters with arms linked to worship the Lord by proclaiming Christ to our neighbors to our friends, to our coworkers, to those people that we come into contact with. Let us spread the aroma of Christ wherever we go so that Christ's death would be at work in us, but his life would be at work in La Mirada, Fullerton, Buena Park, Franklin. Let us go and be bold, knowing that Christ's resurrection enables us to be a bold people. So this is the first implication We are very bold. Second implication, we are filled with a living hope. We're filled with a living hope. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. What's the result of Christ's resurrection and our future resurrection from the dead? We are a people who are filled with a living hope living hope. Let us be encouraged by these verses. They've been good friends to me over the years. These verses tell us that our future and our glorious resurrection enables us to not lose heart. How can that be? Because the sure future and glorious resurrection gives us perspective gives us perspective. It shows us where all of this stuff that we suffer in this life, where it is situated on eternity's timeline. The reality is, is that we will suffer, every single one of us, whether that be by virtue of living in a sinful and fallen world or whether that be because we are seeking to proclaim Christ and live as Christians and that brings about suffering on us. One way or the other, we will all experience sorrow in this life. We'll experience pain, trial, legitimate suffering. We will walk in the footsteps of our Lord, just like we considered a few weeks ago. But, but we will do so with a resurrection insured perspective that says the terrible things that we experience in this life, 
as terrible as they might be and as real as they might be, will be as if it is, they are light and momentary and light of the glorious future that is to come in our resurrection with Christ. Not only that, but the things we experience in this life will uniquely enable us to experience the fullness of the glory that is to come in that resurrected life promised to us in Christ. Last week, Kenny brought up this idea in at least one of his sermons that, that the resurrection ensures that death will be so trampled upon that, it will, that one day we will struggle to remember it's a thing. He used the analogy of a, a desktop computer and said, just like, just like death or just like a desktop computer, death is one of those things that one day we'll go, oh yeah, that was a thing, wasn't it? And such a helpful image. And I praise the Lord for that truth that Kenny just briefly mentioned. And I praise the Lord for that truth because the reality is, is that we're just not there yet today. Death is not in the rearview mirror for us. It is an ever-present reality. Raylan and I um, experienced this firsthand last year. About a year and two months ago on Valentine's Day, Raylan and I found out that we lost uh, a baby girl to miscarriage. We lost her at about 10 weeks. We named her Mercy. And losing her was a bitter pill to swallow. It produced a grief in us and a confusion in us and uh, just an all-encompassing sorrow in us that uh, we still struggle to know how to make sense of. What the resurrection promises and what this passage promises us this morning is that that thing that Kenny talked about last week, the grief of miscarriage, as terrible as it is, in light of the glory that is to come, the glory that will be revealed in the resurrection from the dead, something as terrible as miscarriage even will be seen as light and as momentary for what is to come. I'll be honest, this is hard for me to understand. I can barely imagine this ever being anything but incredibly weighty and everlasting. But the resurrection promises us that what is to come is so good, so magnificent, so glorious that even miscarriage will make sense. This doesn't reduce the pain of it. It doesn't say that this isn't something that we will carry in our body for the rest of our lives. It doesn't reduce anybody's pain, but it gives perspective to that pain. And it says that what is coming will make sense of this. The resurrection reality that is coming is so glorious that death itself will be seen as light. The suffering that we experience in this life as a result of a broken family, 
as a result of sexual sin, sexual abuse, as a result of betrayal, as a result of sickness, as a result of cancer, as a result of us preaching Christ and being persecuted of danger or sword or anything that you can think of. Anything you can think of in light of what is to come, the glory that is to come in the resurrection, those things will be light and momentary. 1 Corinthians 15 puts it succinctly. There is coming a future moment when the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. And when this happens, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? We can live with hope today. Not because we think it's all gonna work out in this life, but because God has promised in Christ that he is working all things to a glorious future reality where we will be resurrected in Christ to enjoy and experience him forever. We're gonna close our time in the word this morning now by approaching the table. And I think this a particularly appropriate thing to do this morning. And the reason why is because the table, the bread and the cup and what these things signify, the gospel is what has ensured this future hope that we are talking about this morning. What Christ has accomplished upon the cross in his death, his burial, and his resurrection is what ensures that we will be raised to this glorious hope to live with God in glory bodily forever. One of the uniquely beautiful things about this meal is that this meal has an expiration date. 1 Corinthians 11 says that we are to eat of the bread and drink of the cup, proclaiming Christ's death and remembering his death until, until he returns. Do you know what happens when he returns? It's at that point when he returns where he will usher in the new heavens and the new earth. And when he will raise us up bodily so that we might experience him for all time. He will gather us together as a holy people bodily and we will dine with him at the wedding feast of the lamb. This meal will give way to a better meal. And so today we remember Christ's death and we proclaim Christ's death as we come and as we take of the bread and as we take of the cup. And we do this until Christ returns for us. And so I'm gonna invite our servers to come forward, please, and to take of the bread and the cup. There's gonna be several stations spread out throughout this room and you in a moment will be welcome to come and to take of the bread and the cup. Uh, there, for those of you who have dietary restrictions, we have a gluten-free option on this side of the room. My right, your left. Um, and as you come, You'll approach and you'll, you'll come and you'll take the bread and the server will say, this is my body given for you. They'll dip it in the cup and they'll say, this is my blood shed, or this is Christ's blood shed for you. Christ's body given for you, Christ's blood shed for you, was shed for you. And, and then dip it, take it back, uh, and you could take and eat. Um, two things we want to make really clear. Uh, the Bible says plainly that this is a meal 
that if taken in an unworthy manner uh, will uh, reap destruction upon us. And so we want to be careful to take this in a, in a worthy manner, meaning that this is a meal for believers. This is a meal for the church to come and partake in together. And so if, if you're here this morning and you're visiting and you do not know the Lord, we invite you to, to observe and to consider these things that we've talked about this morning. Consider this gospel message and the implications that we've considered. And maybe this will uh, cause you to see Christ in his glory, to see your sin and to believe in Jesus. We would love for that to happen. But uh, this also means that for those of us who are living in continued and unrepentant sin, that we need to do some business with the Lord before we approach this table. And so if that's you, uh, I urge you to stay behind, seek the Lord, uh, confess your sin, repent of your sin, and then what a beautiful way maybe to come and to take of the cup. So I'm going to pray and we can come forward. Father, we thank you for the promise of the resurrection. We thank you that all of this is moving, Lord, towards a glorious hope. That in Christ we are the redeemed. That we uh, will one day be gathered to you to live with you and enjoy you forever. And so, Lord, would you fill us with that hope? And would you make us very bold so that we would go and we would seek to bring as many into that kingdom with us as possible. Lord, now let us remember and proclaim your death. Let us rejoice knowing that your death upon the cross promises us eternal life. And so Lord, would you feed us as we take of the bread and take of the cup. Cause us to remember Jesus and be undone with his glorious grace. We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.